Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is the fourth episode of Alphabet, uh, the D episode. Yes, and it's a very special episode today because it is our Halloween episode. Happy Halloween, everybody, first off. Uh, if you're listening to this when this comes out, if not, then this is completely irrelevant to you and just ignore it. Um, but we watched a uh, pseudo-horror movie. I'm sure that mm-hmm. this, was, this was probably pretty creepy to audiences when it came out. Yeah, it's, it, it ended up not being as much of a horror movie as we uh, picked it out to be, but it, it did have some horror aspects, and now you just called it a pseudo-horror. Right. This is Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill. Uh, it's a 1980, not really a slasher, although it has slasher elements. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a, a very Hitchcockian horror thriller. I know, Sam, this was your first De Palma film. I uh, think it was my first De Palma film. I'm not 100% sure, but... Right. I mean, I Scar- Scarface, Carrie, Blowout, Phantom of the Paradise. Those are like some of his big ones. I, I love Scarface. That is a, a, a really, really well-made uh, mob movie. Al Pacino is insane in that film. Uh, and Carrie is a very fun Stephen King-based uh, horror film as well. He is a very famous filmmaker for a reason. Right. Yeah, I, I'd certainly heard of him. Uh, often considered maybe the second coming of Hitchcock, very much uh, following in his shadow in terms of the variety of, of genres that he chooses to make films in and also in his uh, cinematography uh, and general filmmaking. Right, and I know at several points I noticed you compared this to Psycho, uh, which I have seen too. So uh, I, I do enjoy Brian De Palma's work. This mm-hmm. would be the third film of his I've seen. I really need to see Blowout. That's a, a really popular film that he did with, with uh, John Travolta, a remake of the Italian film Blow Up. Mm-hmm. But... This film is, let's just say, uh, more controversial today than when it came out in 1980. Maybe some outdated themes and depictions. Which is one of the reasons that, spoiler alert, this was our least favorite film that we've explored so far on this podcast. But not necessarily without its positive attributes either. Right. I think it's time to get into our uh, plot summary now, where we just give a brief rundown of what happens in the film, which will obviously also be a spoiler warning right. for Dress to Kill. For those of you who have not seen it uh, and still want to listen to the podcast, I think that knowing what happens in this film might actually benefit you in terms of knowing what you're getting into. Right. We, we went into this... Uh, Pretty much blind. Which and, maybe dampened our experience. Right. And as you can see, it, it gets pretty unexpected. It is a uh, film with a twist. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, if you did want to watch the film, I would avoid this uh, plot summary in the remainder of this episode and go watch the film. Because like we said, it is in some aspects worth exploring just in terms of its moderate significance on on the genre and, and for Brian De Palma's career. So the film begins with a graphic scene of a woman showering and watching a man shave through the glass door. Suddenly, a man grabs her from behind and attempts to strangle her. The woman wakes up, realizing it was just a nightmare. Kate Miller, who's played by Angie Dickinson, is a housewife who's dissatisfied with her marriage. She was the woman in the first scene. She's attending sessions with New York City psychiatrist Dr. Robert Elliott, played by uh, a young Michael Caine. Not that young. 
but younger Michael Caine, <laughs> 1980 Michael Caine, who recently retired from acting at uh, 90 years old. A very uh, esteemed and successful career. Right. So he was in his 50s at the time this was filmed. Right. I mean, I would have guessed younger. Mm. But yeah, that makes sense. Kate attempts to seduce Dr. Elliot, um, but he refuses, citing his happy marriage. Later on, Kate plans to spend the day with her son, a teenage inventor and genius who is too busy to go with her. Kate goes alone to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met, where she meets a strange man. She initially attempts to prevent any advances by subtly showing him her wedding ring, but later purposefully leaves her glove behind for him to give back to her. The stranger takes the glove, but disappears, and Kate attempts to follow the mysterious figure through the halls of the museum. They end up outside, where Kate follows him into a taxi. They go back to the stranger's apartment, where Kate then cheats on her husband. Several hours pass, and Kate decides to quietly leave the man's apartment. On her way out, she discovers medical documents indicating that the man has syphilis and gonorrhea. She quickly leaves, but realizes in the elevator that she has forgotten her wedding ring. She returns to retrieve it, but is brutally murdered by a tall, blonde woman while still in the elevator. It's a very shocking and uh, probably one of the more famous scenes in this movie. Yeah. Um, the only witness to the murder is call girl Liz Blake, who becomes the prime suspect due to her proximity to the crime, as well as the killer's next target. Meanwhile, Dr. Elliot listens to a voicemail on his answering machine from transgender patient Bobby, who is revengeful towards Elliot for refusing to sign the papers necessary for a sex reassignment surgery. The police do not fully believe Liz's story, forcing her to team up with Kate's son, Peter, to search for the killer. Peter is able to catch the killer, Bobby, on camera as she is stalking Liz. Peter later saves Liz by spraying a pursuing Bobby with homemade mace on the subway. Peter and Liz, now friends, seek to learn Bobby's birth name by gaining access to Dr. Elliot's office. Liz shows up and distracts Dr. Elliot with a provocative routine, then leaves the room to look for Bobby's records. When Liz returns to Dr. Elliot, she is ambushed by the killer. Outside, Peter is grabbed by another blonde woman. This woman pulls out a gun and shoots the killer through the window, later explaining that she is a police officer who has been trailing the pair. The killer, Bobby, falls to the ground revealing that Dr. Elliot was under the wig all along. Dr. Elliot is arrested and sent to a mental institution, and we learn that he wanted to be a woman, but his male side was preventing him from getting an operation. Whenever Dr. Elliot was attracted to a woman, Bobby would emerge feeling threatened and attempt to kill that woman. The film ends with Liz experiencing a realistic dream of Dr. Elliot breaking out of the institution and murdering her. Peter comes to her side and comforts her as she wakes up. This had a lot of complicated ideas in it. Yes. Almost none successful. Right. Let's look at that opening scene if you want. That that was a strange scene. it's, It's a beautifully filmed scene. Technically, that scene is one of the most beautiful in the entire movie. The it's, lighting, it's, yeah. the way it's framed. But despite the fact that we find out that it's it's Kate's fantasy... When you say fantasy, that's not necessarily a, a good thing, right? Well, it begins as her fantasy right. because she's, she's, she's unfulfilled. The film feels a little paradoxical on what it's trying to do because uh-huh. it's filmed from such a, for lack of a better word, male gaze-y perspective. Really? 
the opening scene? The, the opening scene? Okay, yeah. I the think you meant the whole film. The opening right. scene is Mila Kunis, yeah. And it feels exploitative. But then again, I, I'm kind of neglecting the fact that she's assaulted at the end of it. Which could be uh, the beginning of one of the main themes in the movie is her feeling wrong for not feeling fulfilled in her marriage. It, it seems sort of contradictory that we went from her experiencing violence in, in her dream to then immediately cutting to her being unhappy with her relationship with her husband. How does that correlate? Because the husband isn't abusive, he's just disappointing her. Now that I think about it, is the guy in front of the mirror her husband? So how about this? The The guy in front of the mirror maybe is not her husband. She's dreaming about being in a, a sort of sexual situation with another man, and she feels like a subconscious guilt for that, which is mm. manifesting itself as her literally being assaulted by somebody, mm. being being punished by it. Right, um, that, that could be it. I could see that. And, and it's her entire character arc. I mean, she then goes on to cheat on her husband and then is immediately punished for that, uh, for going against social expectations of being in a traditional, happy relationship. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that that certainly connects to the traditional horror movie. I want to say trope, but it's more than a trope. It's sort of a rule at this right. point. Um, where when, a, when particularly a woman sort of misbehaves. According to uh, social norms. Right, in, in a certain way, she then deserves to get murdered a few scenes later. Right. According to the, to the movie. So this movie is playing with the idea of subconscious guilt. She's also immediately punished after cheating on her husband because she finds those STD reports. Right, and that's what I was saying. She finds the STD reports, mm -hmm. and then she is quite literally murdered. Right. The worst day of her life. <laughs> Last day of her life, even before Kate is murdered, she uh, is standing in the elevator feeling horrible after receiving the news about the STD, and mm -hmm. uh, a mom and her little girl come into the elevator, and the little girl just stares at her and mm -hmm. makes her feel even more terrible, like she's being judged. Uh, right. And I, I view that as a literal reflection of her guilt. Right. Yeah, I, I saw that as like a deep disappointment from right. a little girl, as if somehow she knew what just happened. Right. And the fact that she is... Uh, a girl with her with her mother kind of reflecting what would be considered more of a traditional nuclear family right and and by the way usually in this type of in this type of movie it's a younger woman Kate is probably in her 40s so she's an older woman so perhaps she's really feeling like she's failed she's, uh, yeah she's to, failed. to fulfill what is expected of her and in the elevator uh, I viewed it as her literally being taunted by society's idea of a nuclear family right and how she's not living up to it and then the other character in this movie is someone whose life also does not necessarily reflect what's considered normal by society, Liz Blake. Right. So both of our characters are kind of living outside of that societal normativity. Right. And I think Liz, who's played by Nancy Allen, represents someone who's sort of different from Kate, just in the sense that she's she's this younger woman who hasn't fallen into the, the role in society that tr that women are usually afforded. Uh, in that way, it's interesting how she eventually becomes the protagonist and the final girl, and she's the one who comes out on top. Right. It's interesting that she comes out on top. Uh, this is uh, not something that's never been done before in terms of taking the idea of a, a, a sex worker, which is traditionally uh, uh, something that's seen as immoral, and painting them as uh, as a more of a protagonist. If anyone is afforded the sympathy in this film, it's definitely Liz. That's it. Yeah. But I think the film's portrayal of her is also a little contradictory. The way she wins at the end is literally playing into the sexual objectification of right, women yeah. in that role. 
Totally. I do think it ends up being a little paradoxical. So that felt like a weird place for that character to go. And it, it was only one more step in this film just losing me as it goes on. A lot of people rave about Brian De Palma's um, filmmaking prowess, especially mm -hmm. in this film. Right. And I've, I've heard big things about him. I was sort of disappointed by what I saw here, if I'm being honest. Throughout the entire film? Th there were some places where I think it... There were some really cool scenes, like the museum scene. Right. Uh, obviously, the opening shower scene. Those are the. I think those are the two uh, sequences that stick out to me as being particularly uh, inventive. Right. Or but but besides that, I, I really didn't see a whole lot of. I I felt that I didn't see a lot of consistency personally, in terms of a visual language. Right. I mean that museum scene. It's it's. I wouldn't say famous, but relative, definitely the most famous scene from this movie. If you don't count the uh, the that twist, yeah, that mid mid film twist, mm. be because of because of the filmmaking. I mean, it's it's essentially a silent film. The way that he pulls it off, it's not in one shot, but it feels uh, fluid. Mm -hmm. uh, it's incredibly romantic in uh, not a very conventional way. Kind of remind me of a short that Pixar would make in terms of the. Uh, the silent romantic aspect of it. Really? Okay, so so you disagree with me? No, I was going to say that I think that the level of filmmaking becomes increasingly less impressive after the halfway point, I yeah. think. After the, the midpoint twist, it doesn't elevate the film after that. Right. And especially towards the end, I felt a little confused about some of the choices that were being made. Although I did think that the first half up until the midpoint had a lot of potential and I was really interested in where the film was going mm -hmm. prior honestly prior to the twist I would say really okay I think I enjoyed the first half of this movie more I I agree with that I think that um the first uh, I, I wouldn't even go as far as half I think the first quarter of the movie feels like it's a completely different and more masterful director than the second Intentionally so from a story perspective because that's sure, what... Sure, but no, I, I just think it was it was much better. Uh, it felt so much better made. Yeah, Photo yeah, photographed. Another thing I want to I want to mention is that I I think the term is dual focus shots. Uh, split diopter is the actual technique or a lens actually. It's like split in two. Right. So one is more magnified than the other, which is not something you see super often, especially nowadays i feel like it felt like brian de palma discovered this uh lens <laughs> and wanted to cram it in there as much as possible yeah definitely does but also the one other thing that i wanted to mention most apparently in the museum sequence the uh, the music yeah very classical score by uh by frequent de palma collaborator pino Donaggio was really nice actually i think it complemented the scene perfectly yeah it was very totally. peaceful uh, classical, as you said, and uh, actually, in a way, uh, Bernard Herrmann-esque, and Herman was the uh, frequent composer of Alfred Hitchcock. And speaking of Hitchcock, <laughs> um, this film is very much attempting to be uh, a modernization of what Hitchcock accomplished with Psycho right. in mm -hmm. terms of the cinematography, in terms of the story, in terms of the, in terms of advancing the gender commentary that we mm -hmm. saw at the end of Psycho. Right, even the, the blonde protagonist woman who is murdered unexpectedly uh, close to halfway through the film, or towards the beginning, rather. Um, it's that, not subtle. It's just yeah, not subtle. There's a shower scene at the beginning and at mm -hmm. the end of this film. Right. The, and only, the only thing that would have made this more obvious if she was, in fact, killed in a shower. <laughs> but she but sort of she, is. She was it. killed in an elevator, which, as we mentioned before, was very, very, very similar to 
the shower murder scene from Psycho. You're right. Um, like in terms of the um, the so, editing. Right, and in terms of the fact that you see blood, you hear the screams. That's the point of the murder scene, not the actual gore. Right. Like you don't see the any wounds or anything, or it's not too uh, gross. It's made um, violent and graphic because of the, the acting and the overdramatic effects. Right. The violence comes from the acting and the editing uh, and not in terms of the gore, uh, which is something that was very intentional in Psycho because he was trying to avoid uh, the Hayes Code at the time. I think that that makes a movie from 1980, sort of when slasher films were very much a thing. This, th- th- this is really a special thing because it sort of goes back to the traditional not showing too much graphic violence in a time when graphic violence was extremely prevalent. But was it necessary? Did that feel excessively derivative of, of Hitchcock? Do you think that maybe he should have put his own spin on it? Yeah, I think I so. felt it was a little over the top. Yeah, I, I think I would agree. I don't think it's a bad idea or an issue to want to modernize Psycho's story and themes. Although, personally, I don't think I'd want to touch that masterpiece. And I think a lot of the first half of this movie does do a pretty nice job kind of balancing that Hitchcock homage and also classic, you know, well-staged De Palma set pieces. But as the the story and the script kind of fall apart in the back half, which is kind right. of where we're going to move into now, right. I, I feel like the cinematography kind of does too. And I feel like it kind of loses the, the inventiveness and, and the playfulness that Hitchcock perfected in his films, right. um, which is the difference Definitely. between Hitchcock and De Palma. I, I agree with that. I think uh, this may be an over-exaggeration, but I think that uh, this goes from uh, Hitchcock replication to uh, Scooby-Doo movie in terms of the, the way things sort of unfold right? and the plot points are introduced. Yeah, it becomes more of a, a goofy whodunit. Right. And nothing against Scooby-Doo movies, uh, which I love. Sam does love Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I think some Scooby-Doo movies are better than this. Also linked to Hitchcock, uh, the main female protagonist, or at least the protagonist up to this uh, unexpectedly early point, is killed by um, what appears to be a, a woman. Of course, in Psycho, it's the son uh, pretending to be Nobody his mother. Uh, and then in this film, it's a little or a lot more complicated. And that's what we'll get into now is the uh, transgender uh, conversation. Yeah, I guess it's time to talk about what the ending of this film is. <laughs> I think an interesting way to interpret the plot of this movie is it it's really about women being persecuted for engaging in in sexual relationships that are outside of of what society considers normal. But at the end of the movie we find out that the crimes were being perpetrated by a transgender woman struggling with with her transition. So it gets immediately very complicated and does not age well at all. Right, because of the way it, it, it's depicting transgenderism. Right, it's it's treating it as uh, sort of a split personality disorder that are and two sides that are fighting against each other. And I don't think it's necessarily an uninteresting idea, at least in the way that I had originally interpreted it. Maybe before they sort of over-explained what was happening. Right, and they do over-explain. Of course, they over-explain. You could argue that Psycho over-explains at the end. But in this movie, it does it in a significantly more problematic way than Psycho handles it. Psycho handles it not as an issue of of transgenderism. It's more of a a man with a very strange relationship uh, with society and specifically with his deceased mother. But the idea that a transgender woman is so ostracized by this uh, conservative, heteronormative society, especially uh, in the 80s, the early 80s, late 70s, that... Uh, out of of self-loathing 
she takes out her rage at these other women whose whose you know sexual exploits lie outside of this societal normativity um, right. or out of jealousy that these you know quote untraditional unquote lifestyles are more accepted than her basic expression of gender identity and i don't think it's a coincidence that the other protagonists are this this older woman who is unfulfilled and cheating um and and a, a, a prostitute and that they both strongly physically resemble her resemble bobby they both right. have blonde that's, that's hair true. but basically every scene obviously um after that that reveal at the end just completely fails to treat that character with any empathy whatsoever mm-hmm. um and instead others transgenderism essentially straight up calling it a dangerous mental disorder right yeah it definitely approaches the transgender issue as a a mental disorder right so immediately, to me, any more progressive themes that, right. that De Palma includes... Right, it's immediately problematic. ...with the character of Liz are just undermined by, by this, you know, this thesis of sorts. Right. Which, which upholds these frightening conservative uh, social views. A lot of things ruin this movie uh, uh-huh. in the second half of it, but yeah. that obviously is worse than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. In my opinion. No, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that. Everything that comes after the um, the scene where it's revealed that Bobby is Dr. Elliot, it's just like all the dialogue regarding that the fact that Dr. Elliot is transgender is just so, all the dialogue is just so incredibly dated, dated and, and weird. And, and transphobic. And yeah, it's, just, it, it's, it's really, it's distracting. It's because, the worst. I think yeah. specifically we're referencing a scene between Liz and uh, and Kate's son. Right, where they they sort of pick over the way that they perceive um, Bobby to be feeling over dinner at the top of one of the towers of the World Trade Center, actually. Which is kind of a, a, vi- a literal uh, physical visual reminder of the datedness of this film. Right. And, and as they're having this conversation, there are... Uh, these older or this older woman who is like turning around after each sentence in disgust. It's that, that, really uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and in that scene, it's it's um like that's done for laughs and 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 not to show a, a dated perspective on the older woman. It, it's a strange it's a strange film, definitely. We are definitely uh, sort of punching above what we're qualified to talk about, but uh, I guess that was just our um, very uneducated take on what we saw in that film. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to our personal reviews of the film and what we thought of it. Yeah, I'll start today. So from what I've seen, mostly on the website Letterboxd, which I think has this movie as a a 3.6, which seems high. Mm-hmm. Um, that's above average for Letterboxd, honestly, and kind of close to a four, which obviously we think is giving this movie a little bit too much credit for what it is. So yeah, from what I can tell, this movie seems like maybe a bit of a cult classic in terms of De Palma's filmography, like not one of his top four most famous, but definitely up there in terms of his fan base. And a lot of people are able to look past some of the problematic social politics of the time. We just, we just weren't. We thought right. it was frankly dangerous. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and really irresponsible. And also, even beyond that, we didn't we didn't love the technical aspects of the movie right towards the back half. But generally this is used as an example of De Palma's visual filmmaking skills and also his sort of sensationalist tendencies in what he chooses to depict mm-hmm. and how he depicts it. This movie is definitely explicit in its visuals and themes or it right. can be. Yeah. 
And I definitely feel like, uh, especially in the first half, that this is very well shot. But as we discussed, it, it kind of completely fell apart for me after the midpoint. And in particular, that last act, I don't even know really what the purpose of that was. It felt entirely tacked on and unnecessary. Her yeah. entire final dream sequence. I struggled to wrap my head around pretty much everything about that. I was kind of completely checked out at that point. And as we were saying, the frankly scary depiction of transgenderism as murderous psychopathy is just sort of the cherry on top of questionable acting at times, specifically Nancy Allen's acting. I think Andrew Dickinson did a, a commendable job at the beginning of the movie, and it, it made me want to check out more of her work at the very least. I thought her performance was pretty interesting and had at least some depth, but I, I, I was less a fan of the younger actors' choices. Right. And even Michael Caine didn't particularly blow me out of the water here with the role that he was given. Yeah. Side note, do you think that was actually him in the wig? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. If I had to guess, I'd, I would say that's him. That was him? Yeah. yeah. But additionally, just the confusing plotting, which you referenced, and the strange dialogue. And unfortunately, this is my least favorite of the, the now three uh, Brian De Palma films that I've seen. That said, and given probably a warning in terms of the content and depictions in here, I probably would still recommend seeing it only on the pretext of De Palma's pretty significant impact on genre cinema after Hitchcock. And with the massive asterisk regarding the dated and dangerous depiction of trans identities. I, I agree with a lot of that. I think I probably liked it a little bit less than you based on what I'm hearing. Yeah. Personally, I sort of, I wouldn't say I, I checked out, but I, I was sort of not loving it probably before the halfway point, to be honest. I thought there were some interesting and unique elements like the Hitchcockian main character subversion, the psychiatric horror, and admittedly some of the filmmaking in, in very isolated places. Overall, I think it was inconsistent, like I said. Anyway, I, I think it's, it's absolutely all over the place after the first quarter or so. I think it tries to be every genre, and that leads to it, uh, like I said, not having any sort of a unique language or memorable language. It was weird and not in a in a good way. It, it was weird in just a, an ultimately creepy, fetishistic way. So overall, uh, not, not a great introduction to Brian De Palma for me. I'm assuming that I'll like some of his other films better just based on uh, what I've heard about him. You gotta watch Scarface, man. Yeah, I, I do need to watch Scarface. <laughs> And definitely my least favorite uh, Al Film Bet movie so far. Yeah, we're, we're agreed on that front. And I didn't expect it. I thought this would at least come above Blue Steel. Right. <laughs> but it falls just below it for me. So yeah, uh, without uh, further ado, let's get to some of the reviews that uh, were pulled in here this week by Alec. This week um, with excerpts from a review by silent dawn he's a, a very prolific uh letterbox reviewer if you go on almost any film any uh film that's relatively well known <laughs> you should see his review pop up yeah he has a lot of time in his hands i guess yeah and he's a very talented writer he enjoyed uh this film a lot he gave it a perfect score five stars that's insane um so let's see what he had to say or the basics of it he says that, quote, The opening of Dress to Kill, with its soft core seduction and luscious yet calculated imagery, is Brian De Palma grasping his fundamental characteristics and shrinking them into a singular sequence of delight and horror. De Palma is a master at crafting experiences through a single, narrow view, just like a mirror staring back with your reflection, or a foggy piece of glass clouding up your vision. 
the famous museum sequence in which Kate and a strange visitor have a lustful yet beautifully innocent game of cat and mouse is incredibly focused in what it wants to show and when. Elements of distraction, symbolism, and searching all lead into a section of cinematic perfection, and like the rest of the film, it's a pristine example of De Palma acting on his Hitchcockian desires. Dressed to Kill, in its glorious excess and tantalizing flourishes, isn't just an evolution of Hitchcock's view on cinematic sex and violence, but a genuine entry in America's growing capacity for controversial cinema. End quote. Okay. Um, um, what's your take on his glowing review of uh, of Just a Kill? <laughs> I, I I just didn't see almost any of that. I mean, it's um, his reviews are uh, are unquestionably well written. Right, almost a little, almost a little a little bit much to be honest. Pretentious. Pre- yeah, um, he, he can be. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's interesting. He really uh, liked the the shower scene at the beginning. He didn't seem to find that problematic at all. Right. Um, also. I find his last line, uh, but a genuine entry in America's growing capacity for controversial cinema. I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that. Right. I, I mean, there, there, I guess there's a fine line between controversial and excessive, dangerous and offensive. That, that's a good point. And he doesn't anywhere, I think, uh, he may in the full review, but he doesn't anywhere address the transphobic depiction mm-hmm. uh, of the villainous character in this movie. And I think that yeah, you have a you have a great point there. There is a fine line. Is this is this a review from 1980? <laughs> this review is not from 1980. Uh, the next review is from Sally Jane Black on Letterboxd. Quote: De Palma's style is great. He's got this slick, noirish feel that makes good use of shadow and reflection and odd angles to drive the intensity of any given scene. I predicted his big twist, and of course, the twist left a sour taste in my mouth. All the Hitchcockian references all the gloriously bloody murders, all the weird inventions by the hapless kid that could make this a great film seem wasted by the transphobic plotline. I am not saying De Palma is a transphobic jerk. He may or may not be. I have no idea. I'm just saying the work that he made here feeds into a damaging stereotype. Yeah, that's that's a lot of what we've been saying. Yeah, it does feed into a damaging stereotype, excessively so. The yeah, I mean, even how she says that he starts off with a really cool-looking film and then ultimately just devolves into this very strange... Uh, what she calls a damaging stereotype. It's, it, it just it gets obsessive on the issue, I think, and it, it's all the worse for it. Agreed. 100% agreed. Um, I don't know a lot about Brian De Palma. I've seen some interviews with him. He he does try to incorporate progressive themes in this movie. I think he, obviously, as we analyzed, failed on that front, ended up reinforcing these more conservative uh, and dangerous social ideas. But I... I wouldn't. I wouldn't write him off as a transphobic uh, person. I think this mm-hmm. was a mistake that definitely stemmed from ignorance and and just the generally accepted political view of transgenderism at the time. Right. And it's just a, a dated piece of cinematic uh, ideas that 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 do not hold up, obviously. And uh, the last review from Letterbox is by Ella Kemp. She gave it uh, two and a half stars, and wrote, "quote." Ooh, my name is Brian De Palma. Did you know I know what a split diopter is? End quote. <laughs> we always need at least one joke one in there, I guess. Yeah, I like to I like to throw a silly one in. And uh we talked we talked about this. He did overuse that effect. Uh yeah. Yeah, he did. Okay, now these are uh some quotes from uh the reviews from critics. Uh, uh this is an interesting pick. Um 
This is from a variety staff, but it's from December 31st, 1979, which is actually before the official release. Right. I guess they got uh, an early screening. Yeah. Uh, quote, Brian De Palma goes right for the audience jugular and dressed to kill. A stylish exercise in ersatz Hitchcock suspense terror. Despite some major structural weaknesses, the cannily manipulated combination of mystery, gore, and kinky sex adds up to a slick commercial package. So a positive review from Variety at the time this was released. I feel like this is such a, a surface level look at what, and maybe it's maybe it's accurate, but on, on what draws audiences to the theater yeah. to make, a, to make a, a good box office hit. Exactly. Um, the classic recipe for success in Hollywood, right? Yeah. Good mystery, good violence, uh, good romance. Uh, second review is Eric Henderson, who writes for Slant Magazine, who gave it a four out of four, and wrote that uh, this film inflates paperback pulp psychology into something like a plot, all the better to demonstrate that filmmaking is inherently visual storytelling. I, I guess that's that's an, another interesting way of looking at, I guess, just what a movie is in general. Well, it, it's sort of in agreement with our, our take on the end of the movie in terms of uh, saying that the film's psychological explanation for Bobby's character is something out of a, um, a pulp fiction novel. I, if I, I, he I did give it a perfect score, so I clearly he likes it. Then he turns around and gives it a four out of four, so I'm kind of confused by that because... This may have been a, a review from the time as well. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that he criticizes the the logic of the film and then turns around to kind of use that as a reason that the film works, uh, almost as paradoxical as this movie's politics. Okay, so this is our last critic review. It's from Haley Tiresias for Transgender Tapestry Magazine. Quote, from my point of view, Dress to Kill is not only a generally pernicious film, it is also a film which presents a serious threat to an already misunderstood minority. Uh, once again, I think we would both agree with that. We do feel like uh, cinema, especially these kind of massively popular uh, genre films, obviously have a responsibi uh, responsibility to accurately and not perniciously <laughs> depict social groups, uh, specifically ones that are as marginalized and misunderstood. Definitely. Uh, and it, I thought it would be helpful to get this review in here uh, as a magazine that deals in these specific uh, specific topics. Right. So I guess we could uh, assume that this is maybe coming from the community that this uh, film is marginalizing. Irresponsibly depicting, at right. least, and definitely feeding into and, and perpetuating the social ostracization. Mm -hmm. to our words of the week section uh, which as you may know we pick five words that began with the letter of the week which in this case is d that we feel describes the film in some way from simple to complex my first word of the week is going to be dark uh, a little bit surface level there but um, it's dark because the plot is revolving around murder and uh, other serious themes great that that was also my first word so uh, I think that's the first time that's happened, actually. I think it is the first time that happened. Do you have a different first word, or do you only have five? I only have five. Okay. So, yeah, uh, I would agree with what you said. Um, no, you can't use it. You got to come up with something else. Okay. Uh, 
That's the rule. Dreary. Oh, I like it. His synonym. Right. <laughs> there are uh, murders, obviously, and the struggle for believing individuals and justice and, the, yeah, a lot of dark and dreary things. And, yep. and uh, the quality uh, is also quite dreary, I think. The dreary watch. Yeah. Um, I think I had somewhere in there that it was similar to Blue Steel in terms of law enforcement refusing to believe right, a yeah, female. I, actually, I had that too. I said um, a f- uh, ignorant, bad police force and misogyny from police. We didn't even talk about that element. That police officer was ridiculous. He was trying to get her to, to break the law. He was blackmailing her into breaking the law to illegally acquire evidence, which would not hold up in court. See, that's what I meant by awkward uh, and, un- and unrealistic plotting. My second word is going to be uh, doctor because of Michael Caine's character, Dr. Elliot. All right. So my second word is going to be different because it's a very different film and because it's from a very different time. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's from a different time. But you could also see how um, it depicts kind of socially different groups. Right. Uh, irresponsibly for the most part my third word is going to be uh dalliance because i thought that that uh kind of represented the first half of this this film and and kate's uh dalliance with the stranger and the flirtation there and then leading up to her cheating on her husband can you define that uh a dalliance is a, a casual romantic or sexual relationship my third word is daring and I, I chose that because I think that even maybe even for the time, talking about such, once again, for the time taboo issues was uh, daring. And that's not necessarily an, uh, an accreditation to the film, but it, I think it still was a bit daring. Two, two kind of um, character types you didn't see a lot and you still don't see a lot in, in the film. Right. Very true. Uh, at least depicted... Uh, positively. My fourth word is going to be death because of the the murder. Right. That's good. Um, My fourth word is uh, damning because I think just there are a lot of factors that uh, sort of damned this film to be remembered for only one very specific reason and that sort of ruins it. Uh, And on that note, my fifth word is dangerous. Uh, because both the killer in the in the film, uh, as well as the the transphobia that's depicted, is uh, dangerous and perpetuates some dangerous themes. And my fifth and final word is discovery, because of the discovery that the that the protagonists make that ends up changing the entire plot, for better or for worse. Okay, so those were our ten words of the week. If you have any words that you thought were obvious <laughs> that represent this movie that we didn't uh, think of, feel free to uh, send them in an email. Maybe we'll we'll mention them next time. Yes. Uh, once again, our, our email is alfilmbet at gmail.com. Yes. We hope you enjoyed this, uh, unfortunately, more negative episode of Al Film Bet. Um, had to happen. Had to happen at some point, and here it is. 
feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening listening to us to. And uh, uh, our next episode is uh, the letter E, and we are going to be watching End Day by Gareth Edwards. By Gareth Edwards. Yeah. Uh, someone who you respect, I think. Uh, yes, he directed uh, Rogue One, which is a great Star Wars movie. Uh, he actually has a new movie out in theaters now called uh, The Creator. So we thought it would be a good idea to maybe revisit one of his older pieces. That's uh, probably the most obscure film that we have talked about so far. That's right, even more obscure than Blue Steel. <laughs> so on that note, uh, please check out End Day. Um, All right, and if you want to watch it and uh, submit a review that we would read in the next podcast, please do so. We will definitely read it in the next podcast uh, if you decide to watch that film. All right, yeah. So I, I think that's it for this episode. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will see you for end day. Bye.